I find Golden Age detective fiction the ultimate relaxation. It is, it is something in which you can completely absorb yourself and you can get away from all the unpleasantness and the speed and the violence of the modern world. Murder in an Agatha Christie story is never anything except a smile. And I love the way that, that the detective is cerebral. All he or she does is sit back and think. I was not a clever child, and I don't want you to get the idea that I was a sort of a misjudged child or a particularly lovely child. I wasn't. You know, I was quite spoiled. I, my parents were very wealthy, and, uh, and you know, I look back on my school days with, with all sorts of regrets, some of which had to do with my own behaviour there, the sort of joining in the pack mentality and all the rest of it. I've since then become a patron of an anti-bullying charity. I have for 10 or 20 years believed that my generation has been one of the most selfish to ever hit this planet, that we were blessed with an entire lifetime of peace and plenty and have squandered it in almost every single way. Hello and welcome to this now award-winning podcast episode, How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed. I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is absolutely one of Britain's greatest communicators. He's one of our most successful and prolific screenwriters and novelists with an enduring respect for two worlds, that of the spy and that of the young adult. From creating the long-running TV shows Foil's War and Midsummer Murders to the highly successful Alex Ryder books about a teenage spy, his work for TV, film, stage and in journalism often returns to the thrill of espionage and detectives. He's written new novels for James Bond and Sherlock Holmes, faithful to the world's they were born in. Moonflower Murders is the latest in two novels that have taken us back into the kind of golden age of British fiction, the kind of age of Agatha Christie. And Anthony was awarded an, an OBE in 2014 for services to literature. What a, what a life. Welcome to How I Found My Voice. What a lovely introduction. Thank you so much, Samira. Now, I'm going to say something which may be unfair, but I have interviewed you before. And the first thing I noticed about you and about your voice is that you talk really fast. It's like you're overflowing with ideas. Has that always been the case? I think it's happened more and more, actually. As I get older, I seem to talk faster. Maybe it's because I'm aware that I have less time left. Uh, I therefore need to get it all out before it's over. But you're right. I have been told off a few times for actually talking a little bit too fast. And we'll try to slow down as we discuss things uh, now. Well, you and I are bad influence on each other because I talk fast. And then I thought, oh, my God, Anthony talks faster than me. So hopefully neither of us will be speeding up to match each other. Now, <laughs> let me take you back because you know, the idea is always to see what, what shaped people when they were starting out. You wanted to be a writer, I gather, from the age of about eight. Um, is that right? Yeah, about 10 years old, actually. 10 years old at our prep school in North London. And why? How did you know? Um, well, first of all, the teachers had made it very clear to me that I was no good at anything else. I was one of those kids who was really 100% useless in a private school uh, system, whereby you had to be either good at sport or good 
intellectually and uh, you know and, and academically um i wasn't good i was i was very slow i was the sort of bottom of every single class i was also somewhat overweight i was a kid i still have this terrible nightmare of of remembering when the sports began the, the the team captain would come out or two team captains and they would choose boys to be on their teams so they would just go through the entire crowd of boys you know wilson smith goodman harris etc etc and i knew with a sort of a cold sweaty feeling that the last boy standing against the wall would be fat little me because nobody wanted me to be on their team i was quite friendless i was uh i i, I really wasn't at all happy in the school and two things made the big difference to my life the first was the discovery of the school library and the realization that i loved books not i have to say classic books not heavy books not serious books my first love was tintin uh, co- comic books almost masterpieces incidentally but still not what you would call great fiction and secondly i transferred this into the dormitory where i began to tell stories to the other boys after lights out i still have memories of the teacher's voice echoing my name down the corridor and calling me out of bed to stand in the corridor for talking after lights out but what i was doing was i was telling stories and these stories gripped the other kids and i suddenly realized around about the age of 9 or 10 that that's what i was i was a storyteller i was going to be a writer and i also remember asking my father for a um, a pad of paper and being given a ledger by him an accountant's ledger which i still can see with its black cover and its red spine and carrying it around and writing my first play in that book uh i don't know why it was a play not a not a novel or a short story or whatever but it was a play and realizing that i had found myself and this is what and who i was and would always be that's amazing so two questions in i have to ask what was the first play about and what sorts of stories were you telling the other boys in the dormitory I have vivid memories of both. The stories were about two boys who were always escaping from this school. So it always began on Harrow on the Hill with these two boys climbing out of a window or going down a drain pipe, sneaking past the teachers and heading off down the hill to have adventures around the world. Somehow they would make it to America, to to Europe, to to you know, to wherever to have their adventures. And the two boys were called Jimmy and Edward and that name came from a very popular comedian of that time this is the early 60s Jimmy Edwards and uh, I turned turned his name Who into my two show heroes Who had a shake of wacko about the Gosh, boarding school Gosh I Samira how a young person like you could possibly remember something like that or know something like that is is a is a mystery but but you're absolutely correct yes I'm I know nothing about Jimmy Edwards uh, somehow I feel it's like shudder whenever his name comes up I don't know why but uh it's probably connected to to this school and everything so those were the stories I was told the, the play that I wrote curiously was my first foray into politics it was called the thing that never happened and it was about guy forks trying to blow up the houses of parliament um and I remember that in my version of events guy forks was the hero ooh god this is so interesting <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned that you know the library was this place where you which helped you find yourself and you mentioned Tintin were there other books that you were reading or that gradually became important to you Yeah it was a progression I mean as I said I was not a clever child and I don't want you to get the idea that I was a sort of a misjudged child or a particularly lovely child I wasn't I was actually not a you know I was quite spoiled I, my parents were very wealthy and uh and you know I look back on my school days with with all sorts of regrets some of which had to do with my own behavior there was sort of joining in the pack mentality and all the rest of it you know I I I've since then become a patron of an anti-bullying charity and kidscape one of the reasons I did that was was that I remember that in order to avoid being bullied I 
became a bully. It's the easiest way to, to, to escape that sort of, you know, if you're not going to be the prey, become the predator. So, so I sort of have regrets about that now. So I wasn't clever and I wasn't reading profound books, but I went from Tintin to a series of books by a man called Willard Price, a Canadian naturalist who wrote a series of rather wonderful adventure books, Jungle Adventure, Lion Adventure, Crocodile Adventure, Under Sea Adventure. Oh my God, Samir, when I tell this story, it is amazing how many people have actually got Willard Price in their yeah, DNA I mean, as well. Yeah, I mean, so they were about these brothers who had these wild adventures that would have been a real escape for you from Harrow on the Hill. I loved those books. And more to the point, I still vividly remember waiting for the next one. You had to put your name on a list so that you could say, you know, I want this book when it turns up. And I was always number one on the list for the next Willard Price and was waiting desperately for it to arrive because for me it was more than just another story it was another escape from the world in which I found myself and when I'm writing now I think I'd still write with that same desperation and maybe to pick up on what you said in your first question to me I speak with the same desperation that sense of <laughs> I've got to get on you know the, the next one is always going to be better than what than where I am now um, and, I, and I try to write with, with the hope that children will cling to the next paragraph and wait for the next chapter and look out for the next book in exactly the same way as I did with Willard Price. Now, there's one other influence I know, because the very first time I met you, you were standing staring at Ursula Andress's bikini from Dr. No in a, in a cabinet. And it was a, an exhibition at the Barbican about the art of 007. Um, I gather you saw Dr. No age seven, which is quite young, no? I have got downstairs in this house the paperback that was released at the same time of the film with Ursula Andress on the cover next to Sean Connery. And of course, the film had a huge impact on me. It was everything that was not in my life was in that film, including travel, lovely places, hot weather, women, um, adventure, excitement, self-confidence, um, danger. My life was... I was trapped in this sort of rather unpleasant grey bubble in my childhood and, and this school. And the, the film was a huge release for me. And the copy downstairs, which I have, has got my mother's signature in it. She had to sign the book because if the parents didn't sign the book, you weren't allowed to bring it to school. It showed that they approved of it, even though I, I imagine that they were probably wrong to approve <laughs> of such reading for a nine or ten year old, however old I was. Yeah. But that was, of course, the beginning of my um, journey into the world of Ian Fleming, yes. Yeah, well, we're going to come back, of course, to talking about Bond. But what really really emerged is, you know, your years at prep school, and it is the prep school years, isn't it? Sort of eight to 13. That was so horrendous. Can I ask, did you ever talk to your parents about it? What, you know, what was going on at home that you were being sent every year to this horrible experience? It's a real mystery to me, Samira, even to this day. I mean, my father died when I was quite young. He was 20, I was 21 or 22 when he died. My mother died about 10 years later. And I never did get the chance to actually ask them what on earth they were thinking of, because I remember weeping, crying, screaming, shouting in the last four or five days of the holidays. I also remember going on a diet in the last five days of holiday. Isn't that pathetic that, you know, you gorge yourself for four weeks and then five days before you go back to school, suddenly I don't want to eat anything because I know I'm going to get teased for my weight and everything. And I, and they knew I hated it. Plus, of course, I was being beaten the whole time by the headmaster. They, they were totally aware that this place was a hellhole, but they still sent me there. And I can only think that 
being the sort of people they were, middle class, Jewish, sort of on the make, if to put it crudely, they thought this was sort of part of being British, yeah. part of being, you know, it's that stiff upper lip mentality, it'll make me the man that I am. There's a joke I put about that in, in one of my books, Gruesome Grange. The father of the of the main character says that he was beaten every day, uh, sometimes twice a day, and it made me the man I am, he said, pushing himself away from the dining room table in his wheelchair. And that was my that was my little yeah, Gruesome Grange is sort of a, is, a, is an early children's book of mine that, that is sort of a, 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 a pastiche of my days at, at this school. I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, when I sent my children to school, they, they boarded from the age of 13, not from the age of eight. I went through ructions with them, and every day I was phoning them or texting them or asking them, are you happy? If you're not, let me know, and you're home before you can blink. Yeah, and they were happy. You know, it was a different experience. By then, of course, schools had changed so much, yes. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about your father? Because you say that you were quite affluent, but there was a kind of mystery about his life, wasn't there? And I think he once asked you to pose as a courier and pretend that you were delivering a large amount of cash. The cash was 10 our certificates, each one worth £15,000, so £150,000 in bearer bond certificates. And that's the same, incidentally, it's just money, it's cash. It's sort of, you know, you can take a bearer bond and you can you can cash it in anywhere in the world, no questions asked. And I had to pretend to be from a security company going to an office. And I still don't know to this day what that was all about. My father was a strange and mysterious man. In a funny way, he was a bit like one of the characters in my novels, in my Bond novels or whatever, but, but less exotic and less interesting, unfortunately. Um, on which side of the line he fell between sort of, you know, being, uh, being propriety and, and criminality, I don't to this day, really know. He died eventually bankrupt, so he lost it all anyway. But he was he was peculiar and, and emotionally very detached from me. I mean, you know, I, I have to say that, that he ridiculed the idea of my becoming a writer when I said that was what I was going to do and began to tell stories and to write at home. He tore me apart. I mean, absolutely didn't um, have any time for it at all and sadly died before I was published for the first time. My mother, incidentally, always much more supportive and was very excited and was alive when my first book arrived in the post and, and was thrilled by my success, but not him. Um, and again, that's had a huge impact on the way I've behaved with my own children and and, uh, and on the way I've perceived myself. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but- well, when I, I want to cut in quickly and mm. say that when I tell this story, which I have done in the past, I always have to remind myself, and particularly to people who are listening now, that, that I shouldn't complain. You know, I, I was not poor. I wasn't having to visit food banks. You know, there was travel. There was, you know, luxury and, and food on the table. But, but the moral of the story for me is that rich kids can be unhappy too. And that's, that's where I was. Yeah. Now, you went on to read English literature at York University in the mid-70s. Did that help you at all, given that you knew you were already going to be a writer? The most formative experience I had was actually pre-university. I went away for a gap year, which one could do very easily at that time. And the school where I was at actually gave me a little scholarship to travel to Australia, where I spent seven months as a as a cowboy at Jackaroo, uh, which was a it was a crazy, crazy thing to do. I remember arriving on the farm the first day and being given a saddle and not even really knowing what it was, let alone which part of the horse it went on and which way round it faced. But I had a sense at the age of eighteen that. As educated as I was, I knew nothing. 
and that I needed to see the world and I needed to test myself and challenge myself. So I did this job for seven months and with the money I earned, I then traveled back overland, uh, an incredible journey, one that nobody could now do. It included the Khyber Pass, it included time spent in Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, India, um, amazing train journeys, some danger, uh, a real adventure. I've never written about it particularly, but it's sort of, you know, it was the making of me. And to answer your, the second part of your question, when I came back to England, I didn't really want to go to university. I had it in mind that, that it would be a waste of three years that, you know, sitting there, I wanted to get on with my career and with my writing. But I was persuaded to do it largely because it would give me three years in which to read literature and and to continue writing plays and, and books, which is what I did. I had a very good time at York. Excellent. Now, you were just 23 when your first book, The Sinister Secret of Frederick K. Bauer, was published. And I found an edition with the cover shows a cartoon of a schoolboy looking rather sinister, like Blofeld behind a big desk. What, what was the book about? Me. All my early books were about me. The first 10 books I wrote, I've already mentioned Gruesome Grange, but that book and many of the others were just about rich kids with horrible parents trying to have adventures and trying to have fun. You've got to understand, Samira, that to write a children's book back in the 70s, which is when I started doing it, was ridiculous. I mean, I was barely more than a child myself. I was a very, very immature 20-something-year-old. I had no real experience of life. And at that time, writing kids' books, nobody was interested in them. This is pre-JK Rowling. There is only one children's author that everybody's heard of and that's Roald Dahl and you know the idea about talking about children's books in the media or newspapers reviewing children's books I was too embarrassed even to tell people that I was a published children's author it felt sort of like the sort of grubby uncle in the corner doing magic tricks at birthday parties Um, so and even to this day I never describe myself as a children's writer and I find something slightly sort of I don't know shabby about that description obviously not the profession I'm very proud of it those, those early books, Frederick K. Boa, were clearly an attempt to make up for the lost years of my childhood and to reinvent myself in books. And it's interesting, I think, that the only time or the first time I became successful as, a, as an author for young people was when I dropped anything that was autobiographical, any of these laments about rich kid with unpleasant parents and wrote a book about a teenage spy and a character who had absolutely nothing to do with me. Did you have a career plan at this point? Did you think, you know, writing books for children was going to be where your interest lay or, or I don't know how far you, you thought it through? I've never had a career plan, never in my entire life. I don't have one now. I don't see writing as a career. Writing is my life and it's my passion. Ah, I started writing these books because they gave me pleasure and because I thought at the time that there was a huge gap in the market, but there was actually, there weren't many books like the ones I was writing. And in a way, I've been proven right, because although the books didn't sell hugely, they are still all in print, which is fairly incredible when you think we're talking about something like 35 years now. And yet the lack of success was 
depressing. I mean, you know, I couldn't live on the books. I was working in advertising. I was having to earn a living in other ways. And I still remember my wife saying to me, I got married when I was 33, saying, why are you writing these books, Anthony? You're banging your head against a wall. Nobody is buying them in any large numbers. The audience is not finding you. You know, you should you should do something else. By then, incidentally, I had already strayed into television. I was working on a show called Robin of Sherwood. Let's move on to that. You'd written about 15 books, I think, by the time TV really seemed to become your focus. And you got your first big break writing for the much-loved 1980s British drama Robin of Sherwood, which I used to watch. I absolutely loved. I think you wrote for the, the later series which starred Jason Connery, and you wrote several of those episodes. How did that come about then? By accident, really. I wrote a book of myths and legends. That was one of the books that was in the sort of the first 10 or 12 books that I wrote that were not enormously successful. Although, again, the, the, that, that book is still in print to this day. One of the myths I wrote, one of the legends, was Robin Hood. At the same time, Goldcrest Productions, who were making Robin Hood, desperately needed a new writer. The hooded man. Would you be? You must be Robin Hood. And I sent in a storyline because I knew everything about Robin Hood. I, of course, knew the series extremely well and loved it, but I also knew the whole background. And Richard Carpenter, who was the genius who had created uh, Robin of Sherwood, was very heavily into Hearn the Hunter and the whole mythology of that world. And I was the first writer, I think, who'd ever come in um, with the same sort of knowledge as him. So although my first script had lots of problems with it, the first storyline, he met with me and also Paul Knight, who was the producer, they were the two biggest influences in my writing life. They were they were wonderful human beings and great mentors to me. They taught me so much. They were so generous. They were so so thoughtful and so kind to me. Uh, and taking me from zero, having never written anything for television before, to number two writer on what was the biggest television show at the time was an enormous leap of faith on their behalf. And I miss them both, you know, very much even as I speak about them now. But that was the beginning of my TV writing career. It was thrilling because I would be, you know, because of the urgency with which these scripts were needed, I would literally finish a script on Friday and it would start production on Monday over the weekend. And, and it was just a sort of an endless. And then, and then as soon as it was in production, Paul would bring me up and say, can you do another one? And so I kept going and going and going. I loved it. I've never had a TV experience like it. Well, as you know, there's huge affection still for Robin of Sherwood. I know they've made an audio adventure recently with some of the original cast. Um, two things. One is it's interesting how it brought in elements of the occult and sort of mythology, which hadn't really been done with Robin Hood before, but it was also grounded in, in realism. Um, and I wanted to ask if you learnt something from that, and also more specifically, if Richard Carpenter taught you any things about script writing, about structuring that you particularly recall. He was obviously a great influence on you. When I heard that they were looking for a writer to do a TV show, I went out and bought a book called How to Write for Television. I even remember the author's name, Malcolm Hulk. And I read the book cover to cover, and it sort of showed me how to do interior, one interior, the forest day at the top of the page, and then how to do a bit of scenes and then dialogue. A lot of it was intuitive. And of course, what I did was I read everything Kip, Richard Carpenter, wrote, and I'd seen all his episodes. And so it was a sort of a, 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 a what's the word, symbiosis, I think. It was it was absorbing his knowledge and his enthusiasm and his talent uh, and, and, and adapting it to myself. I've always been very good at that, actually, at learning 
from other people who are better than me. You could say that when I do my Bond or my Sherlock books, I'm sort of doing the same thing. But Richard Carpenter was, of course, there, and he would read the scripts. He would show me what was wrong. He would, you know, tick me off. He, you know, simple things like when to start a scene and when to finish it. These are things he used to talk to me about, and, and yet some of them were intuitive, and some of them he helped to shape. Fantastic. Now, one of the other shows that you were writing for was Poirot, a long-running uh, drama of the Agatha Christie hero. And you seem to have always had this real love of that so-called golden age of British crime fiction. What, what is their appeal? I love puzzles. I love magic. I love illusions. I love trust words. I do not love the modern age. And therein lies your answer. I find golden age detective fiction, Poirot in particular, the ultimate relaxation. It is, it is something in which you can completely absorb yourself and you can get away from all the unpleasantness and the speed and the violence of the modern world. Murder in an Agatha Christie story is never anything except a smile. Murder in the street, murder in cities, murder figures are all horrible and depressing. But a murder in an Agatha Christie story is a smile. And I love the way that, that the detective is cerebral. All he or she does is sit back and think. And it all sort of comes into focus. And I love that about a world. I love, I think was in a world in which truth is in such short demand, where fake news is what we're talked about all the time, where 24-hour news keeps us not only having to sort of move fast forward all the time, but always have to second guess what we were told yesterday, because Monday's news is disproved by Tuesday's news. And it keeps going on and on and on. But these golden age detective stories deal in absolute truth. Somebody kills somebody else for a reason. Here are the clues. Those were the suspects. This is the world and that is the solution. And I find enormous solace in that. Yeah, well, of course, you know, two of your most recent novels, um, The Moonflower Murders and then the one that you wrote before it, The Magpie Murders, are very much in that tone. And in fact, kind of unfolding, I just read The Moonflower Murders, a thriller within a written thriller. You have to read the book that someone wrote before they died to sort out the puzzle. The Magpie Murders, I gather, was a particularly huge success in Japan where it won eight awards. Why is that? Well, the books have been enormous in Japan, actually. I mean, they, they I mean, they've been bestsellers winning. worldwide, we should say, but I was fascinated by the Japanese adoration of them. Well, the Japanese are wonderful puzzle makers. I mean, if you read books like, uh, I think it's called the Tokyo Murder Mysteries or the Tokyo Zodiac Murder Mysteries and uh, Crooked House, Soji Shimura is the name of the author. These are two wonderful examples of puzzle detective fiction at its absolute best. And there are many, many others. The Japanese also, of course, create wonderful puzzle boxes. And I always think of books like Moonflower Murders and Magpie Murders as being puzzle boxes where you have to move all the different components into a certain pattern in order to open the box and find out what's inside. And that's something that comes straight out of Japan. Some of the greatest wooden puzzles ever created, look at the cup and the saucer with the lump of sugar, come straight out of Japan. So maybe it's that that appeals to them. I don't know. But it it has been quite amusing to me to see the books take off in a country so far away and so different culturally from my own. And at the same time, incidentally, I find it very reassuring. It reminds me of something that I've been saying now for years and years, which is no matter how many differences there are in the world, differences of opinion and politics, literature will always, always bring us together. Yeah. Now, you've been at the heart of two of the most loved long-running crime series on TV. You wrote, I think, the first six episodes of Midsummer Murders, and you created Foil's War, which was, I think, originally set during the Second World War. And particularly with that one, which, you know, got cancelled and then revived because audiences loved it so much, and then you, you took it on into the Cold War. 
you seemed very good at creating a kind of the bubble of the world in which your detective operates. Tell me where the idea for that came from. All through my writing career, I've been interested in using murder mystery in a different sort of way. My thought was this. When I was writing Midsummer Murders, a show which I loved doing, uh, the, the first episode of that. White lilies. You forgot the white lilies. This is the satin service. It occurred to me that three months of my time writing it and two hours of your time watching it were wasted if the end result was simply the butler did it. Full stop, the end, goodbye. And I began to wonder if one couldn't use murder mystery to do other things. And so I came up with the idea of Foyle's War, which is a murder mystery set at a time when murder has been completely devalued. Why is it in Hastings that you have any interest at all in the Countess lying in the library with a knife in her back when just a few miles away across the channel, hundreds of people are being murdered every day by the Nazis uh, and, and murder has been devalued? And the whole interest for me in Foyle's War was that Foyle did not want to be a detective, just as Alex doesn't want to be a spy, incidentally. Foyle wanted to be part of the war effort and was, was, was frustrated and still having to solve these crimes. And I loved that show, Foyle's War, not just because of the many, many murder mysteries that we created with all the clues, the red herrings, the suspects and the fun solutions, but much more so because of the world that it depicted. I was fascinated mm-hmm. in telling the stories of Great Britain, 1940 to 1947, as it turned out, and telling stories that had never been told before, the history of plastic surgery, the attitude towards homosexuality in the, in the armed forces, map making, many, many other stories. My favourite episode of Foyle's War is an episode called The French Drop. You went ahead with this plan of yours against my advice and without further consultation. I think you should remember, Miss Pierce, you may run this section, but I am director of operations and I don't think I need to come asking permission from you. The sheer madness, you can't believe it'll work. Why not? It's exactly the sort of operation we were put in place to achieve. If we win, we survive. If we lose, we don't deserve to. Which introduces me to the SOE, Special Operations Executive, with which I've had a lifelong fascination. And that story particularly pleases me because there is no murder in it. There isn't, in fact, a crime in it. It is a story entirely about the period in which it is set, masquerading as a murder mystery. You've also then, of course, not surprisingly perhaps, written two books each for 007 for Sherlock Holmes commissioned by the Fleming and Conan Doyle estates. Tell me about finding the right voice for them, because I know you loved the world of Bond and the ex-Nazis in the Cold War, but to find your own voice writing those very, very famous detectives or spies. Samira, the whole point is not to find my own voice. It is to lose my own voice, because if I'm writing Bond, it is Fleming's voice, and if I'm writing Holmes, it is Doyle's voice. And I was very, very careful always to stay resolutely and completely within their worlds. So to give you a very easy example, uh, I never gave Sherlock Holmes a girlfriend, although it would have been quite tempting to have some, you know, femme fatale turn up in his Baker Street offices. Doyle had already said, for him, there was only ever going to be Irene Adler. That's in a scandal in Bohemia. And therefore, Doyle has set down the rules. And I also was very careful. So, so, so I never tore the envelope as far as the rules were concerned. Bond would always smoke and he would always drink the correct drinks and wear the right clothes and drive the right cars because that's what Fleming had said. But with also what was even more important to me was to find the language with which the voice, as you say, that these two writers used. And they have very, very specific voices. The way that Doyle constructs a scene, his extraordinary use of language. Incidentally, one of the things about the Holmes novels is not the mysteries as much fun as they are. It is that that 
Doyle is a brilliant gothic romanticist. Mm -hmm. He conjures up pictures of the mist and fog-filled streets of London, the cobbles, the growlers, the, the River Thames, the dirt, the grime, all of it. And he does it with genius, and it's down to his language, just as Fleming, in creating what we now know of as the modern spy novel, is a consummate writer. Look at the opening of Goldfinger with Bond at the airport, or, or some of the scenes in Casino Royale where he's suffering in pain. They are brilliant. He was a wonderful action writer, but he was also brilliant at atmosphere and, and, and mood. And that's what I have to learn from. So it's not my voice. It is trying to emulate theirs. When the doorbell rings at three in the morning, it's never good news. The first sentence of? Of Stormbreaker, of course, the sentence that changed my life. Yes, your first Alex Ryder book. You've said it's the finest sentence you've ever written in your view, and I can see why. Can you talk me through how something like that emerges and what you do with it? I'm sitting in my house in Crouch End in North London. It's a summer. I've written 10 or 11 children's books. As I've mentioned to you, my wife has told me that I should give up because it's not doing me any good. And I've told her there is one more kid's book in me, one more book for young adults that is going to change my life. And I'm sitting at my pad at my desk with the garden in front of me. I'm in a little studio at the bottom of the garden, which I miss to this day. My wife sold the garden um, and the house and the studio. Um, And I write down that sentence you've just written and I look at it. And I know I've changed my life when I read those words. Why? Because for the first time, I've written a children's book that doesn't sound like a children's book. I've written an adult book for kids. I've written something which is quite dark, which is quite moody, that draws you in, that that does something I haven't ever done before. My other children's books normally begin with either a joke, um, it was dinner time at number three, we're not amused. That's a line from one of my earlier children's books. I rather like that too, but it's not a life-changing line. Uh, It's just a gag, a pun. Uh, but this had something special. I'm not overclaiming here. I'm not saying that, you know, 20 years from now, the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations is going to have it on a page. But I knew it was going to change my life, and it did. Alex Ryder had, I think, 12 novels in 20 years. Wonderfully Bond-esque titles like Never Say Die. A whole two generations of children, including my own, grew up on them. Um, I know that they've uh, recently been revived in a new screen series several years after the film version. How do you revisit them? I don't know if, if you feel anything's dated about them or not, but I'm fascinated by how you, you revive them for the screen. I've been writing those books for 20 years and they have changed. They've become, I think, a little darker, a little bit more serious, a little bit more introspective for Alex's point of view, because I have always been aware that my audience has grown up. I used to write for, you know, young people who are 10 and 11 years old. Those people are now now 30 years old and 31 years old. It's incredible. I meet them all the time. And I think the big success of, of the Amazon show, uh, the Alex Ryder on Amazon, is that it was clever enough to adapt itself for that age range and older, as well as not alienating the very young children. So it's tougher, it's darker, and it's more violent. The world we inhabit is murky. It was a head-on collision. I don't understand. Your uncle was over the speed limit. Things are never as clear as we would wish. No hospital in London has any record of him being brought in. Maybe they spelt his name wrong, they're always doing that. Well, maybe it didn't happen. I want to find out who killed my uncle. There's something we'd like you to do for us. No one outside this department needs to know about this operation. I was going to give up writing Alex Ryder because I was very afraid of the books becoming stale. I don't want to be a formula writer. I don't want to write 30, 40 books simply because I know they will sell and there'll be a check at the end of the month. But I, I, so I stopped after doing Russian Roulette 
and was planning never to do another one, got sucked back in by my publishers to do some short stories. Doing my short stories reminded me how much I missed the character, and it told me also I still had some good ideas. So then I wrote Never Say Die, and then I wrote what I think of as now as the best of all the Alex Rider books, the most recent one, Nightshade, which is... It has, I think, the best action I've come up with, the best plot I've come up with, some of the best ideas and descriptions. It's Alex Ryder come of age, and and, I'm, and there's at least one more in me to do before I stop again, but, uh, but, but there is definitely going to be at least one more Alex Ryder. The one thing I just wanted to ask is the issue with James Bond has been, you know, he he's never able to age. And of course, the film incarnations have been part of that story. He's frozen in this kind of perpetual 40-ish. And I wonder with Alex Ryder, I mean, he's obviously grown up to some extent, but have you felt that actually it's quite important that he, he stops at a certain point? You don't want him to be sort of an ageing Roger Moore type, do you? Uh, well, you say James Bond never ages. Although we love Roger course. Moore. <laughs> Roger Moore was fantastic, but he was also 57 when he played Bond for the last time. And, and Daniel Craig is no spring chicken either, although I think he's a wonderful Bond too. Alex Ryder, I made a, a, concert, a, a definite choice that instead of... I wasn't going to do the Harry Potter thing where every book he was a year older. If so, he'd now be himself into his 30s. I aged him a few weeks at a time. Uh, which did make it a bit of a make it difficult because I think in one year he saw he saved the world eight times, uh, which was pushing it. But he started age fourteen. He's now fifteen and a half, and all I can say is is that he's quite an old fifteen and a half. He is certainly much more mature now than he was when I started the books. I think he is still recognisably the same character. But when you have been chased as often as he has, shot at, beaten up, kidnapped when he's come so close to, you know, just seeing the end of the world so many times, it has to have had an effect on him. And he certainly isn't the same carefree kid that he started out as. But I'll add to that and say this, that I've always believed that children's writers have a responsibility to be optimistic, to be cheerful, to be forward-looking, to never forget that it is the children's world, that young people will inherit the world that we are making for them. And one of the reasons I came back to Alex in Never Say Die was I had left him unhappy. At the end of Scorpio Rising, he was definitely hollowed out, depressed and beaten by the world. And one of the reasons that persuaded me to come back was that was a mistake. I owed it to my readers to give Alex back his optimism. And I did that with, first of all, Never Say Die and then with um, uh, The Nightshade. Interesting. One drama that I remember talking to you about, which sadly didn't last beyond a first series, was a lovely BBC drama you did called New Blood about two 20-something crime solvers. And I want to ask you about it because I think it reveals really something very interesting about your ideas and the way you work. So one was working for the police, one for the series Fraud Office, Mark Strapan and Ben Tavasoli. Polish, British, Iranian, British. I loved that it was, they were 20-somethings, they were set in modern London, they were dealing with issues like flat shares and being patronised by your bosses. Often when people get older and are as successful as you already were by that point, they lose interest in the ability to write well about the young. You don't. You really seem to care about what young people's lives were like and to make something heroic for them. How come that's always endured with you? It probably goes back to my own childhood. There's so much in that question to unravel. But first of all, let me say that New Blood was one of my biggest disappointments. I mean, I thought Ben and Mark were terrific. I think they deserved a bigger success. I feel more sorry for them than for me. Totally you know agree in this, with you. You know in this game that, you know, not everything you do is going to succeed. But I thought that they were terrific together and had wonderful chemistry. And I feel so sad it came to nothing. And part of the reason was actually that, that so much of television is star-led, that not having two major stars in the roles... Um, hurt us from the very start. I'm not saying that the scripts or the direction were perfect. We made mistakes. But I think a second season would have patched up those mistakes. And I feel quite 
aggrieved, let me say that, that we didn't get a second opportunity to go forward I'm with so it. I'm so glad that's... I gave you the opportunity to say that because I feel aggrieved too. And I think people should try and dig it out and watch it. Thank you very much. I mean, you know, it, 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 it stays with me. As to your other side of your question as to why I have this feeling about young people, I have for 10 or 20 years believed that my generation has been one of the most selfish to ever hit this planet, that we were blessed with an entire lifetime of peace and plenty and have squandered it in almost every single way in our desperation of the planet and all that sort of stuff, but also in the sense of taking everything for ourselves. And I even feel that, you know, Brexit was a decision largely taken by people of my age and will have a bigger impact on people who weren't even able to vote at the time. And I think there's something wrong about that. Just as I feel that, um, that, 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 that many of the decisions we're making about COVID are actually protecting the elderly um, at the expense of young people. And my view about COVID is, is that whatever we should be doing in this crisis now, and I'm not saying that everything we're doing is wrong, but it seems to me that our first priority should make sure that young people's jobs and livelihoods and futures are protected, even if it is at the expense of older people like myself who succumb to this illness. I mean, it, but that is the, the, that should be be the natural order of things. And I do think that our policy worldwide has been skew-whiffed and we have forgotten that it is the young people who are disenfranchised, who largely do not have a voice, who should be the ones who are most listened to. And, and you know, I know there are people who say that, you know, if, if young people had voted at the last uh, Brexit election, then Brexit wouldn't have happened, for example. And young people do get a chance to vote at 18. There are people who argue that the voting uh, age should be lowered. But nonetheless, I still think that the, 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 the way, look at, look at Parliament, look at the people who are in Parliament, look at the people who are making decisions in companies, look at the people who are, you know, in control of the world. And, you, you know, that the, there is that famous phrase, isn't there, pay or mail stale. But I would say, let's not bring all that into it. What is true is they're all old. Because of your hit rate with books, more than 40, I think, and so many TV series, it's hard to imagine that you wrote anything that never got picked up. Have you had much experience of failure, setting aside the example of New Blood, which didn't get recommissioned when we both agree it should have? I've had failure, yes, of course. I would say all my theatre work has been, to a, an extent, a failure. My, my plays, you know, Dinner with Saddam did not do as well as I'd hoped, despite the fact that I stand by it and think it was a good play. The play before that, Mind Game, divided the critics exactly down the middle between those who disliked it and those who hated it. And, that, and there are many plays I've written that have never got onto the stage. So that has been if you like, a failure. But I think that you have to be very careful when you use that particular F word. If you are afraid of failure, you can never really succeed. And I think you have to embrace failure and accept it as part of the writing process. I mean, it's, it's what I was saying to you a few minutes ago. I could have spent my entire career just writing Alex Ryder. Once it was a hit, why do anything else? That's a success. But that, to me, is the exact opposite of what writing is about. Writing is about daring to fail. Uh, so I, so to turn your question round, if you ask me if there was anything I have written that I regret that failed, my novel The Killing Joke, for example, a novel of which I'm rather proud, which is one of the very few novels of mine that's out of print, a, a failure so big that the editor of a, of a, of a major national newspaper rang me uh, one day to say, don't buy my newspaper tomorrow, Anthony, you don't want to read the review. Um, and that's when you know you're not, not doing too well. But do I regret writing it? Of course not, because it was one step on the way to writing... Magpie murders. I am going to do a bit of amateur psychology on you, which is, I think about this outpouring of creativity that has defined your life from the moment you realised you were a natural storyteller. And I wonder if 
it was partly just the release once you got out of prep school after the horror of those early years, which must have seemed endless, that the rest of your life just feels like liberation. Uh, where, where I part company is, my life has not been a liberation. I think my, my writing has been a liberation from my life. You know, I'm very lucky. I have a, I have a wonderful wife and two brilliant children. And, I, and, you know, I have been very fortunate with my success. But happiness only really comes to me when I'm when I'm in the you know with this in my hand, a pen, and um, and 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 when I'm writing. So there you go. L- writing is the liberation from life. If you if 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 we're going to play the the amateur psychiatrist, I wouldn't dare play uh, the amateur psychiatrist with you and expect to win. <laughs> <laughs> no um, winning, Samira. It's a, let's call it a draw. Well, let's call it a draw. Anthony Horowitz, thank you so much for talking to me about how you found your voice. Thank you very much, Samira. It's been an absolute pleasure. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. 